Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 77, The Need for Purpose. Welcome. My name is Lori Krieg and I am the executive director of Hole in My Heart Ministries. And we are coming at you from Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I am here with licensed therapist and Argyle expert and my husband, Matt. Hello. Hey, Matt. (laughs) We also have our producer and the most professional radio voice among us, producer Steve. Hey. Hey, hey. And today we are on our 10th in the series of 10 we're doing on core needs. Where's that celebration sound? (laughs) Today we are focusing on that need for purpose, as Steve mentioned. And in case you're listening for the first time, what are core needs? Those are inside of that metaphorical hole in our heart. And ideally, we take these good needs that God put inside of us before the fall, and we take them to God to support this good God-need-meeting process. But because of that fall, we go instead to the world, to people and our work and all the things to fill those needs. And sometimes in this need for purpose, we go to marriage to fulfill that purpose or an ideal family. And we're going to break that down today. Uh, We could talk about many things as far as like we could go to work, et cetera, but you could listen to our podcast on rest if you want to hear more about that. But today to talk about this marriage and purpose mishmash, we're going to break it down with our guest and author of the Appropriate to This Conversation book, Breaking the Marriage Idol. That author is Cutter Calloway. Cutter, welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me. We are so glad to have you. Just a little bit about Dr. Cutter Calloway. He is assistant professor of theology and culture at Fuller Theological Seminary. And prior to teaching, he served in pastoral ministry for nearly a decade, focusing on young and emerging adults. And he is the author of several books, including two recent ones. One that came out this week, y'all. So check this one out. It's called Deep Focus, Film and Theology and Dialogue and the Aesthetic of Atheism, Theology and Imagination in Contemporary Culture. And today we're going to focus on a book that was released a couple of years ago, and it was recommended to me by our mutual friend, Greg Coles, and it is called Breaking the Marriage Idol, Reconstructing Our Cultural and Spiritual Norms. And he also writes for Christianity Today and the Huffington Post, and we're so excited. I read this book. I loved it. And so I'm so excited to talk with you. Welcome, Cutter. Thank you so much for having me. And just a note, this book actually is more recent than a couple years ago. It just came out uh, June of 2018. Well, hey, we are not behind at all. Yeah, exactly. This is is up to the minute. Really, uh, you know, current stuff. How are you doing all these books back to back, man? Uh, I don't know. I'm I'm a little obsessive and uh, (laughs) I have little kids. And yes. so it, it forces me to be really uh, intentional with the time that I do have. So it helps. I love it. Well, we understand and we're, we're excited to dive in with you. Before we dive specifically into your uh, book and this whole need for purpose that we can look to marriage and family, um, let's talk, we'll, we'll tiptoe into it with our question of the week from last week, which was, what paradigm did you grow up with around your marital and familial future? Like, was it for sure you're getting married? You're going to have babies? Was like fostering or adoption even in there? I know we talked about that last week with our guests. So Cutter, we'll talk, we'll start with you. What was the paradigm you grew up with around marriage and family? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, uh, you know, on the, the podcast series I did on, on the same topic, I, I framed it in terms of like a narrative, a story. Hmm. So what story did you inherit? Um, and I, I think I've talked to my, my mom about this, right? I, I sent her this book and said, mom, please don't feel like all moms would. And that I'm like blaming you for this. <laughs> this, is, this is a broader sort of like church culture thing. 
um, that, that my parents played a part. And, and we sort of unpacked that together. Of what did we communicate as a family? Um, with mm-hmm. I'm one of five kids. Yeah. Um, and, and it's pretty clear uh, that and my mom would even say this as she read the book and responded. And she said, you know, it, it, it is true that my vision for you as kids was that you would grow up and find a spouse and get married and have kids. And, you know, and I would have grandkids, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and she she then would say, of course, I would never have said or thought that it would be bad or wrong if you mm-hmm. would be single, um, if, the, if the marriage or the relationship didn't look traditional, like maybe you didn't have biological kids, you adopted or fostered. And she, but then she paused and, and I, I think was really honest and said, but as your mom, I would have felt sad for you. Mm-hmm. Um, this wouldn't have, uh, you know, in my heart of hearts, sort of like my emotional core, um, deep down, I did, I think, have that vision of, of you all growing up, getting married, having that sort of traditional um, mm-hmm. view of what marriage would be. And so from that, that's sort of the implicit narrative or implicit paradigm mm-hmm. that even if she wasn't consciously doing that, um, together with all these other um, stories that were being told to me as a young man and then an emerging adult, um, I think that's definitely the the paradigm I was handed. Hmm. Hmm. I'm guessing many of us in this room can relate to that. How about you, Matt? Yeah, I, I really resonated with what Nathan said on, on Facebook. He said, let's put it this way. When I first learned about the rapture, I was terrified that Jesus would come before I was able to marry and have kids. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> because that that was, it, it was like almost a, a non, uh, not an option to remain like, single. A non-question. Like it was, yeah. A, yeah, it was just something that you didn't have to think about. Like for me growing up, the, the trajectory of life always pointed to, okay, you know, graduate high school, go to college, find someone, get married, mm-hmm. and then, you know, eventually have kids. And, and that was just never, and I, well, adding on to that, it was also told to me that, okay, marriage is going to fix your struggles in, in certain areas, especially regarding sexuality. Right. And, and so it was just a, it, there was almost a sense that, yeah, until, until you find that person that you're going to marry, you're, you're not a complete person in, in some ways. And that was never overtly said, but that was definitely the, the feel behind a lot of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody even has to say it, right? I mean, that's the hard thing about uh, identifying these kind of idols yes. is that they, they operate powerfully in the background without anyone having to say anything because it's just the condition for our experience. It's just the mm-hmm. assumption that everyone operates with so that you, no one has to say it out loud because it mm-hmm. just is. You just will do that. There's no question about it. And then that, that obviously informs how we then go and read the, our, our authoritative texts of our tradition. Mm-hmm. If those are the assumptions you're operating with, then your interpretation of those texts is going to follow from those unquestioned assumptions that no one ever actually articulates. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. Steve, same experience? Uh, yeah. I mean, I also resonated with what Nathan said on, on Facebook. And I mean, like for me, like literally this panic that the rapture would happen well, before you could have I, sex. Just, like, is that really the thing? That's, yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. I mean, well, he, welcome to the dark heart of manhood. <laughs> yes. Yeah, which I think we're going to dive into that right. a little bit more. The, yeah. the way Ma- Nathan put it was, you know, before I can marry and have kids. Yeah. And I'm like, well, yeah, but really it's about sex. Yeah. 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 Um, yes. Yeah. That's the, inference. and, and I think, you know, the message or the narrative that kind of was never overtly stated, but for some reason I had in my head was you go to college, yeah. you know, get a degree and they'll hand you a job. Mm-hmm. You save sex till marriage 
and you'll have a, a dream marriage. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Like there duh. won't be problems. The problems come if you break the rules beforehand. Mm-hmm. So if you walk the straight and narrow, then everything works out nicely. It's, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, God will bless you, quote unquote, you know, and of course I interpreted what that <laughs> was supposed to mean, yeah. you know, but <laughs> I, I feel like that was kind of like what I had in my mind and singleness was just like, I am not called to like being a monk. I'm not going right. to live in a monastery. That's how I pictured singleness. I Absolutely. Think, you know, I resonated with Kristen who said the same things that we're hearing here. And and you all listeners, you didn't all respond the same way. I think we're just resonating with this. I loved hearing from you all, which again, if you want to respond to me, you can friend me on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or email us at podcast at HIMHministries.com for any of our questions, questions of the week. But um, some of you said, yeah, I actually did grow up with this sense of singleness was an option. It was rarer. <laughs> like that was not uh, the norm from what I heard from our responses. Um, but So we're relating to you all, including Kristen is, is one that I related to. And she said marriage was a given. It wasn't that singleness was devalu- devalued, but it was only acknowledged as a season that would lead to marriage. And she said it was absorbed from a lot of broader homeschool and I kiss dating goodbye culture, hmm. which you even think about the premise of like, I kiss dating goodbye. The, you're, of course, you're going to be dating for this whole, <laughs> like, there's no like, which one am I going to pick? It's it's this. Um, and so I, I know I had like a list in my head, even in kindergarten. It's like tie your shoes, learn how to read. Like there was just a checklist. Hmm. And I think I'm hearing that from all of us is that there was this checklist of graduate high school, college get married, have babies. And so when you slam your head into something different, you're like, oh, okay. Well, for me, like waking up to my own sexuality and being like, oh, I don't fit the mold here. Um, And so it just really shakes you up. Well, this is a good start of our discussion that I just want to dive into really hard now, but we're going to get to know you a little bit better, Cutter, through our Goofball Island trip. Time for Goofball Island. Excellent. Let's go. (laughs) And here we are. And what we are doing is we're playing our classic table topics and the vehicle. Y'all hear it. It's the Lazy Susan in the background. Um, But this is the time, again, for those of you who are new to the show, this is the time where we take a vacation from our problems and really uh, get to know our guests. So we've got four questions for you. I was trying to be even Steven. Steve, Hello. Um, from last week, if you heard some of our guests there, Brett can only speak in twos. And so I, I did four this time so that he could listen and, and not cut us off with the, the odd number. But Cutter, if you were any type of day, I know you're out there in California. What type what, what type of day are you like sunny and cloudy or like what's your personality? Well, I'd like to think I'm sort of like a a brooding intellectual, so <laughs> cl- cl- cloudy or something. I don't know, but yes. probably in truth, I'm a second born, so I'm probably like a um, a, a hailstorm or a lightning storm where <laughs> it's really just and not even hail, a lightning storm or thunderstorm because it's just whatever attracts attention, but there's no real like bite behind the bark. So that's probably <laughs> nice. the day. That's great. Mm-hmm. And now we have your wife on as a surprise guest. She's going to verify that. Um, <laughs> All right. What's the most impactful book you've read in the last 10 years besides Bible? We know. Um, probably. Well, it's probably more recent than 10. So I, I don't know if I can remember that back, but that far back. Um, but probably a book by a guy named Patrick Reyes who wrote uh, Nobody Cries When We Die. 
Hmm. Um, it's about his experience of vocation um, as a, a Latinx uh, a man growing up in sort of uh, a violent crime-ridden area and then mm. going through the academy um, and learning what it means to be a person of color in the academy and all that wow. stuff. So, uh, fabulous book. Everyone should read it. Great. Thank you. We'll add it yep. to the list. All right. Now, I have a working theory, speaking of yep. marriage and or friendships, that when people get married, one of them loves jigsaw puzzles and the other does not. Or with your mm. close friends, there's usually a mix of them. So, Matt, mm -hmm. for example hearts jigsaw puzzles so hard and i just fall asleep thinking about them um or Nate, you fall asleep thinking about jigsaw puzzles every yeah. night <laughs> me too wow. uh, uh, uh. so how about you cutter between you and your wife and or close friends are you a jigsaw puzzler well, ho hopefully your theory has room to account for contrary evidence oh no because yeah, um, I, but but it could be that I don't actually have any natural affinity for jigsaw puzzles, but my wife does, and so I've lovingly accommodated to her. Oh. Um, but, w I mean, we used to play uh, what's called Puzzle Wars. Have you ever played this? No, um, go for well, it. Well, we made it up, so I'm not surprised. But get, get like, <laughs> a, uh, like 50 or 100 piece more sort of like animated jigsaw puzzles and all, all of about the same skill level. And then let's say you have four people around the table and you everyone holds your hands up and then you say, go, and you turn your puzzle over and you race to complete your puzzle. Um, <laughs> that's that's jigs, uh, Puzzle Wars. But my wife's amazing at it. Uh, I'm not all that great. But okay. then recently we got back into it as a family and I even for Christmas got her, because I told her this would exist, but she didn't believe me. We live in a small little place. So how do you do a big jigsaw puzzle on the same table that you eat? And I go, I'm sure there's something for that. So, of course, I Amazoned it, and I got her for Christmas a, a roll-up jigsaw puzzle mat yes. so that we can, we can do it, and then we roll it up and set it away uh, between our sessions. So we both are, are a jigsaw puzzling family. Wow. So this is really the sign of two becoming one flesh. One day yes, I will love exactly. jigsaw puzzles. The pieces yeah, just we, fit together. Oh, my yeah, word. Yeah, they just fit. They just fit. <laughs> Steve, what about you and Kelly? Are you guys the same mm, i think i would get into jigsaw puzzling if i just did it yeah but the idea of starting gives like i get hives just thinking about <laughs> starting one. Anxious thinking about it but i don't want to do it by myself because so maybe you guys i'm a work quality together. time love language person there you go and i think kelly would just appreciate something that's not you know netflix <laughs> So, so there's your next date yeah, night. You're yeah. welcome. She'd be open to it. I think I'd get into it if I just kind of got over the hump of starting. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of your wife, what first drew you to her, Cutter? Well, um, this is a family show, so <laughs> I will say the second thing. Um, I actually met my wife. We didn't start dating until we were in college, but I met her in high school. I transferred to the high school she's at the very end of my junior year. And uh, I think I had like a month left and I went to a basketball game and she was a cheerleader. Um, and I was smitten from the moment she came out onto the, uh, the basketball floor to lead us all in uh, robust cheering. There you I go. Would, I would now say what actually drew me to her probably was uh, her confidence. Hmm. Um, she's just a very like striking woman, uh, hmm. no matter where she's at or what. I mean, she doesn't be a cheerleader, you know. Um, it's, it's really interesting like how um, – how much she attracts uh, people's uh, attention is not even the right word, but um, yeah, she's just a very striking person. Um, and that's always been very attractive to me. 
Hmm. That's super sweet. So let's let's dive, though, now into more of your heart and our heart and our heart for this conversation in the heart of the matter. So, Cutter, we ask every guest these two questions. And the first one is, when was the gospel first good news for you? And how is it still? Hmm. Um, well, the, the first question is hard to say. Um, I mean, I was a pretty young kid and I, I would, I would say it in terms of, you know, I, I didn't, I did, but, but it wasn't this sort of, uh, you know, I accepted Jesus into my heart kind of thing, but I describe it more like Jesus laid a claim on my life. Um, and I didn't necessarily have a choice in the matter. Um, and that was pretty early on. Um, and, and I, I can't even say why or how, but I mean, I don't know, seven, eight or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and that's sort of, uh, been true throughout my life. Um, and so even up to today that, um, it was good news for me in the sense that, um, yeah, there was a, <laughs> there was a force or a presence, um, a, a benevolent presence in the world that, um, that was naming me as valuable and cherished. And, mm. um, you know, my, my brooding, uh, intellectual uh, comment is, is one that I, I probably am prone to, to those sort of more like despairing and, yeah. and self-deprecating moments. Um, mm. and so for me, that's, um, always that sort of that voice saying, you are my beloved, um, you matter to me, mm. um, irrespective of what <laughs> social media says, um, or anybody else that, that, and even with all your flaws and your legitimate problems and stuff, yes. you know, that, that there's somebody out there that still, um, cares deeply for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's pretty much how it functions for me today. So good. And it really speaks to this whole series that we've been talking about how we all have this desire, these desires to be seen and known and loved and have value. And we can often shame them and be like, oh, no, mm-hmm. I don't need it. But instead, actually surrender them to God who can fill it and let people be the gift of support. And not mm-hmm. only people, but our, our purpose support these good needs. So God gave us this good purpose and how we define it is filled with a sense of profoundly mattering. Um, and we mm-hmm. see God give us this this good need for purpose at creation and how he gave jobs to both Adam and Eve. But again, we can we can feel like our purpose, especially as we're talking about like this checklist. OK, I get married, I get, go to college, you know, all this whole thing like that. Our purpose is that trajectory. And then it's like you get married and then it's like, well, now it's have kids. Um, <laughs> so how how have you seen and you lay this out in the beginning of your book, how we get our, our purpose and get our, our needs, our value system from this whole marriage happily ever after. How have you seen that in the world, Cutter? Well, I mean, you, you see it just in the, the kind of like, what would you call it? The wedding industry? (laughs) (laughs) The, the, you know, um, I, I will celebrate, um, this year. We'll, we'll be married 19 years in July. Um, so it was, I mean, inflation has happened, but I think, and even more than just basic inflation, I think the wedding industry has, has, has boomed in different ways Hmm. that I don't know. I don't know what it would cost, but, but it's amazing to me that there's the amount of like time and expense and things that are dedicated to this, sort of event, um, and whether you're in within the Christian uh, tradition or not, um, this like public ceremony sort of declaring 
what, what is it? Like, what is this thing that we've held up? And, and if you just look at, at what we value and what we spend our money on, um, that that is obviously and pretty clearly something that people say matters, right? This, right. this, cup, this coupling sort of narrative. Then if you look at all the other just um, stories and paradigms and scripts that were handed um, by our broader culture, um, it's pretty clear that this notion of, of coupling um, resulting usually in some sort of marriage, but not necessarily having to be that, um, is sort of pit, held up as this ultimate destination that mm-hmm. that isn't just what everyone ought to be pursuing, but could be ultimately fulfilling, right? Right. Um, and and that's fascinating to me. And part of what I what I do in the book is to say, okay, it's not shocking to me that um, the world at large might offer up a vision for fulfillment that may be impoverished, right? That may not have all the quite the things that I would say are are what God desires for us. But what's fascinating to me is then when my own community, my own people, right, uh, the, right. the Christian church starts basically uh, adopting those exact same scripts. Um, and I go, wait a minute, all of a sudden, I don't see any difference between these two. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't see much of a difference between us, the, you know, cautiously saying um, there are certain people called to marriage. That's one thing that's obviously a good and, and true about what we get in the Bible and in, and in our, our history. But then the the fine line between that and saying or assuming um, not just that we all will be married, but that it, in fact, will ultimately fulfill us. And so part of what I just sort of did in, in terms of unpacking that that question that you just asked is to say, yeah, where do these if it's not from the Bible <laughs> where we, we claim to get our narratives, uh, our, right. our, our resource for these sort of things? Well, then where is it coming from? Mm-hmm. Um, and if we can identify that, then maybe we can start. Uh, kind of walking back and reverse engineering uh, the the kind of way that it's captivated our imagination in that sense. Mm-hmm. And you uh, you talk and you actually break down like Disney movies, like you walk <laughs> yeah. us through. You talk through Taylor Swift songs, and um and how the world like it's like this is this is the happily ever after is that's okay yeah. they get married they're found they're seen, but then too I thought it was interesting because I remember the wildly successful and popular wild at heart and captivating Ah, series, Mm -hmm. those ones. And I started reading Mm -hmm. captivating, which I know there's many great things that those authors write, but I chucked captivating across the room (laughs) as I do with books that frustrate me Um, because she's like, you know, every girl just longs to twirl and to be seen as beautiful. And it just, every sentence she was saying was, it just did not resonate with my, with my own personal experience. So how, I guess, can you unpack some of that, both like the world, but then too, like how did those books repeat uh, really an unbiblical narrative? Yeah. Well, you know, I I don't know if I could say exactly uh, how it emerged that that was in the, the sort of cultural waters of this subculture of Christianity. Right. Other than to say, you know, from what I know, now I'm a young man. I am, oh, I don't, I, let's just scrub this from the podcast of what, <laughs> what age I'm about to turn, but I'm about okay. to turn 40. Oh, oh and so <laughs> I, I know, I know, but I'm, because of the time I'm, I'm like rethinking everything, you know? Yes. Yes. Um, but, uh, I'm told there was a time about or around the, the year that I was born that, uh, Christians in the United States, um, uh, made some concerted and decisive decisions regarding their sort of public presence at large. Hmm. Um, and, and some of these uh, were, you know, kind of fell along political lines. Right. And, and marriage was, was one of these things. Well, 
Um, at the same time, you get a lot of these sort of mass movements of evangelicals realizing like, oh, we have some say in culture if we all kind of gather together. Um, and what was interesting to me as I kind of look back at, at this history and what are those sort of those hooks that they landed on, uh, marriage obviously being one, the, the challenge was, well, we've got to um, <laughs> do a couple of things here. One is advocate for what is a traditional sort of ethic of sexuality, right. um, that, that this is coming on the heels of the sexual revolution. Um, and you've got a lot of the prominent leaders of the evangelical movement who are basically responding to that, right? Um, and, and in many ways, rightly calling out the, 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 the problems with a sort of rampant, unchecked sexual liberation. Mm. Um, at the same time, they're trying to say, to, to argue to, you know, young people and adults um, in a way that isn't to say that sex is bad or wrong, um, but whoa, 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 right? Um, and, mm. and I lumped this in with the uh, Just Say No movement uh, with, you know, Reagan's war on drugs. Right. That's how, um, that was my sort of sex ed in, in the church was, Absolutely. you know, it's, uh, sex is wonderful and amazing and life-changing and will do everything for you that you can when you're married, but don't you dare think about it or talk about it or, or even imagine it, you know, like that will destroy everything in your life. Um, and so you get these really strange uh, sort of paradox of messages. And the only way I think that you can really reconcile that is to say, okay, well, what are those stories that we can draw upon that are in the water already um, that model for us these really sort of traditional views of sexuality, mm -hmm. um, some of which are good, but then also um, affirm where we do want to say uh, sexual expression can be uh, explored. And and that's why you get this, what I would call the Disneyfication of it, or the princess notion mm -hmm. um, of, of, of religious or Christian spirituality um, and sexuality. And and so some of it, I think, was really just um, back to so my my uh, expertise is actually in cultural studies, like theology and cultural studies. Hmm. That's why it's no small wonder. Um, I actually was uh, someone wrote a review of this book recently and she she was very gracious, but she disagreed with a few things. Um, and her her thing was uh, this book is interesting um, but not perfect or no, no, insightful, insightful, but not perfect. And I was like, well, I will take it. Right. Yes. That's, yeah. that's an A plus. Yeah, mostly just people just say not perfect is, you know, my, my work. Um, but her, her point was that these early chapters to her were amazing. Like the way I'm unpacking the, the cultural uh, scripts that we've got, mm. I'm thinking this is just a no brainer, right? Right. Um, so I've got to step back and go, okay, well, not everyone operates in the sphere of me of constantly analyzing culture. Um, but, but these are the powerful scripts sometimes that are in operation without us knowing it. Um, and we then draw from that cultural well of resources to articulate our Christian narrative, almost sometimes without realizing that we're either doing it or the ways that sometimes they conflict with what, for example, the Bible says. So fast forward to the Eldridges and <laughs> the campaigns around um, uh, princesses and these sort of princess tropes. Mm. Um, and you basically have an entire subculture that's moving in this very powerful direction and basically uh, running roughshod over, for example, your experience where you right. go, well, wait, I'm not a twirling princess. I haven't mm -hmm. grown up imagining that I'm going to be rescued by a prince. Mm -mm. And for that matter, I don't see that anywhere in the Bible <laughs> telling right. me that I should do that. Um, and so, you know, I, I actually want to, um, because I'm from the same area and have been in ministry with uh, people who wrote those books, um, I want to be very cautious and, and say, 
I say this not because they're individually at fault for this, but it is much broader and it's one example of uh, a larger cultural and communal issue that we all need to work through, not something that we can simply say, oh, here's the two or three authors that sold the most books, so they're at fault. Right. Um, it really gets back to our families and our youth ministries and our churches and everything else, too. So, and Exactly. And it was well-intentioned because even how you just yep. laid out the cultural setting, it, it was yeah. well-intentioned and it was a response. But I also heard even in your playback through your words as opposed to your book right now is you hear elements of fear in that. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. in reactionary movements and also fear-based, which which what happened is single people dropped off. <laughs> like we yeah. lost them. Yeah. There was no, oh, but they're also sexual beings too. It was just shove it down, get married. It's going to be great. And so yeah. it was reactionary. It was a little bit fear-based. I want to circle back to what you alluded to with this whole paradox of sex, that it's both ultimate in marriage. So it's so it's uh-huh. like almost like, guys, hey, we can we have a way to just get you off that path. But just look at us. Look at us. It's a different it's like a different sales pitch. Yes. Um, but I thought it was really interesting. This study that you talked about by James Bielo. And I, I don't know how you yep. say that, but he, he he looks at men and I felt my blood boiling, not toward <laughs> not toward men. But as I was reading it about like, oh, I haven't been able to articulate this this exact space of where both men are the source of all our problems and yet they're also the hero. Can you dive into that mm-hmm. study and, and how that worked? Yeah. Um, so it's basically just kind of looking at different um, Christian groups in the U.S. Um, in terms of how they address, uh, for example, either a sexual consumption by men, whether it's like pornography or even um, illegal things like sex trafficking and things. Hmm. Um, And so it looked at different groups and said, this really interesting thing happens along what, you know, again, I hate these categories, but they hold up in some ways, the more uh, conservative or progressive lines um, in terms of churches or ministries. Um, And so he he looks at a couple um, that would say, um, there's one group that would say that the, the profound problem with uh, sexuality writ large, and then marriages, you know, if marriages are failing at these catastrophic rates, um, a core group of Christians would say the the source of that problem is the individual man, right? Mm-hmm. If they could just get hold of their, you know, uh, crazy rampant sexual desires, that would fix, that would be sort of like the trickle down that would fix the rest of society. Um, there's then the progressive side that would say, actually, this is a systemic issue, um, that as you can fix the individual hearts of man, all you want. And the question would be, can you, (laughs) um, but, but unless you, unless you address the actual systems that are in play that are, um, incredibly, uh, favorable towards sort of, uh, well, I'll just say like toxic is the right word, masculinity, Mm -hmm. Um, then you're not going to do anything in terms of actually addressing the material conditions that women and children suffer under and other men. I mean, men are suffering from it too, but the, it's an overwhelmingly, the victims of this are, are women and children. And so, um, the, the challenge there is, I think back to, um, how do we, uh, teach about, uh, stewarding our sexuality in the church um, is it something that is purely an? In- now, I would never say it's obviously not having to do with my individual stewardship, 
but it also is something that is a burden that the entire community bears together. Right. And unless we can do a bit of both of that, mm-hmm. um, we're probably going to fail in one aspect or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of what that study was getting at um, in terms of looking at how we like to talk about uh, sexuality, especially um, men's sexuality. Well, and I think the reason that my blood was boiling was because I've wrestled with exactly this is is feeling both is feeling powerless in both parts of like men are predators and women are victims. But then at the same time, men are the heads of the household who Uh, need to just get married and just get their issues under control. And but in both scenarios, women have no voice. And yeah, so yeah. as someone yeah. who has a voice, it was, it just, you, you, you articulated what I wanted to say is, oh man, we are both part of the problem. And how can we look uh, at that and, and come yeah. alongside you, not shame you and smash you on the heads. Uh, yeah. But then also we're part of the solution so that both yeah. get a voice. Yeah. Oh, I see. I see what you're saying. Yeah. That, um, that makes more sense too. Um, yeah. I, I'm now I might part uh, company with some of your listeners. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I'm fairly egalitarian. Yeah. Not fairly. I'm pretty radically egalitarian. We've um, we got a mix. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, and, and I would say radical in my egalitarianism because I, it's not even as simple to me as to say, oh, men and women are equal. Mm. Um, it's that I think my task as a spouse, whether I'm a man or a woman, my task as a spouse, but I'm a man, so I'll speak for men, is to be radically, um, a servant to my wife. Mm. Uh, and you know, you know, you could have some that would say that's still the man's head of the household, but part of his headship is this sort of sacrificial headship. Mm. Um, I don't think, I just don't think that goes quite far enough in practical terms. Mm. Um, I have lots of single friends. Um, I live in LA, so obviously there's a lot of single people out here. Um, and then, especially my Christian single friends, when they're men and they start rooming together, right? So if you get three or four single guys in their late 30s, they get lots of theories about marriage that are very interesting. Um, <laughs> and, and so they'll, they'll come and they will dispense their wisdom about marriage to me. Um, and, and it's amazing because they, they always talk about this, this theoretical uh, point where the husband and wife come together and they they have an irreconcilable decision to make, right? right? And they both, you know, and it's like somebody's got to make a decision, um, and so it's got to be you. And I'm like, okay, first off, I've been married for almost 19 years, yeah, and it is it has never happened that way. Right. Yes, we've had disagreements, yet you know, and I was like, but for me, I know my own heart, and my wife is a perfect barometer for decision making. If we radically disagree, that should be a red flag that I'm probably wrong. Hmm. Um, that I, I, if I go into it thinking, well, when there's a disagreement, my way or the highway, I think that's a fundamentally flawed way of thinking about the partnership that is marriage and real world decisions that you make. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, it's it it it's an opportunity. And and now getting back to how do we then steward our sexuality as individuals, as couples, and then as a broader community, it's exactly what you're saying. I think we desperately need the wisdom of women. Um, as a corrective to the impoverished sexuality of men. Mm. And it could be that right now for such a time as this in 21st century America, it's uniquely important. Maybe there were some times uh, in other locations, other contexts, other histories where it was different. But right now, I, I just look at, you know, all of the scandals that are <laughs> the last 18 months have been revealed, not mm. just in, in industry or in politics or whatever, 
but in our churches, yeah. um, the, the abuses that have gone on. And I go, it's really hard for me to separate that from the fact that structurally our churches and our communities of worship um, also elevate men to positions and give them liberties and freedoms that perhaps they should never have had hmm. or never have been trusted with. Um, and we need some strong female leadership to help us right now um, in ways that that maybe before now uh, weren't weren't as demanding, I guess, or mm-hmm. urgent. Thank you. I love it. Matt, did you want to add anything to that? Or did you I'm, see, look, I'm, at, I'm submitting to Matt. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> he just looked like he had a sentence to say. Well, no, I just, I guess I'm just listening. It's all like processing. Okay. I guess, well, do you, do you see any... Because it's not just like, you know, when you talk about like pornography and stuff, it's not just men. It's not just men anymore. And, you know, and there's this sense of, okay, like, yeah, men, men's sexuality is definitely broken. But on the other side, you know, women's sexuality is is also very, very broken, not necessarily in the same way. When you talk about like rape statistics and stuff, it's, it's vastly, you know, men are the majority of of the uh, perpetrators, you know, but there's also this kind of more subtle, I guess, misuse of sexuality that, that still happens in, in, in women. And so I guess how, how does, where does the balance happen? Yeah. Um, yeah, for me, it's, it's certainly not to say, um, there's not issues with, I mean, anything we deal with in human life, we're all sort of broken, depraved people. So we've got these issues. Um, I think coming out of like that, that Bielo or Bilo, I, I don't mm-hmm. know how to pronounce his name either, mm-hmm. uh, study in terms of how different, uh, Christian traditions deal with these issues, um, that to, to say exactly what you're saying is, um, you know, it's the Spider-Man phrase, right? With great power comes great responsibility. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. and that is to say that, that men for all sorts of reasons, um, have been empowered in ways that their sexual, uh, dysfunctions, um, have ramifications that far outstrip the the mm-hmm. things that happen if, if with women's sexual uh, issues. Um, it's not to say there aren't victims, and it's not to say there aren't you know that women don't have victims in their sort of sexual dysfunction as well. But it is to say, I think as men, we need to step back and and really acknowledge some sort of deep and abiding. Uh, well, yeah, darkness in our hearts, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. uh, that's there and talk about it, uh, be open with it. And this, again, is why some of the, you know, the every man's battles and these other things are are good initiatives of saying we need to get on the table um, what really is going on. But then we also need to address the address the systems that would, uh, for example, overlook some of our indiscretions and not the indiscretions mm-hmm. of others um, that would maybe in some cases uh, help us uh, reward us in some ways for um, uh, not addressing or not being forthcoming mm. with some of our failings. And I had a, a, a pastor friend, he works down at uh, Andy Stanley's church, uh, North Point, and he's one of the, pa- the campus pastors of one of the churches. And, and he said, I think um, we are as a church broadly and the individual churches are okay with pastors um, who have struggled but not pastors who are struggling. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I just took that to mean like, oh yeah, that's absolutely true. And that in the in the ver- in the realm of sexuality or marriage, 
it's fine for me to talk about how God has rescued me from, you know, a, an affair or something, you know, whatever mm-hmm. in the past. Mm-hmm. But don't you dare talk about that now. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what I'm seeing right now, and this is where I say we could use the help of women yeah. who have not been in positions of power and yet still have had to voice concerns and voice uh, uh, struggles, whatnot, is we can learn from them. And we need to be intentional in the way we structure our organizations, but then mm-hmm. relationally to say, okay, we need to give you, we need to listen to you, right? Yep. I'm just um, a fascinating, sorry, this is a total side note. I can bring <laughs> the ladder back, but I'm reading, I'm reading this uh, uh, book on, uh, on trauma and recovery. Hmm. And it's a psychological book. And um, uh, the author, Judith Herman, um, actually the title of the book is Trauma and Recovery. It's a kind of a classic text. She talks about um, Freudian psychoanalysis and how it was for a time this brilliant, insightful uh, uh, read of what was going on with women during Freud's uh, time. Now, he ends up um, discovering, and basically what he did, it's called talk therapy. I mean, this is psychoanalysis. Just sit down and the person talks to you. Um, And a few of their clients, uh, or not a few, but many of their clients were all coming, they had this thing during the time called hysteria, right? And they thought it was uniquely a women's issue and what's happening. Well, it turns out what it is, is it's PTSD for sexual abuse victims. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason they were able to come to that is because, and according to Judith Herman, is because Freud sat down and for hours and hours and hours just listened to the stories of women. Um, and all of a sudden, he was seeing these things. Now, later, the, the societal pressures, the political, the academic pressures basically forced him to say, ah, I think they're making it up. In fact, um, it has to do with these sublimated uh, erotic desires, right? And he basically recanted. And she says it, it was this great moment that was then completely abandoned <laughs> because he couldn't deal with the actual evidence he was encountering. Mm. And it all was born from simply listening to the stories of these women. Mm. Okay, so roundabout back to now, we're in the church, we're thinking about um, the various sort of dysfunctions that we all share. And I just feel like we're at this moment um, where we could say we need to acknowledge that we are sexually broken um, in ways that perhaps have been flying under the radar and we haven't been acknowledging. Yep. Uh, part of that starts with listening to the stories of people that we haven't heard before. Mm-hmm. And then also for the people in power to say, um, how might I actually leverage this power to, um, to uh, uplift those voices? I love it. And it, it, I'm just thinking, Matt, of your and my relationship where I have, instead of elevating men to being like, you're in power and you're way better than me, I feel like I have erred on the side of like, ah, you're worthless, which I've had to confess <laughs> and repent, to be honest with you. Um, but I just think about how our marriage operates. We too, it's yeah. like literally those moments of the, you're going to get in a battle where you both yeah. can't. We I asked Matt that as I was reading your book. I'm like, have we ever been in one of those moments? And I can't think of one. Um, But then, too, just even talking about this sexuality piece, Matt, like your humility and servant Mm. nature of coming to me with your openness and and sexuality. And me, too, Matt, your question about women's brokenness and sexuality with my brokenness coming to you. And like we both benefit from this global Mm -hmm. church community conversation just as this microcosm of Christ in the church in our marriage. But we see that in our ministry and Matt with your counseling. So I... This is all needs to be like triple underlined, but I do want to pivot for a second um, and ask you a question because this really stood out to me and I've repeated this to several other people as I was reading your book, Cutter, um, is what was the purpose of marriage? So I I know I grew up seeing and hearing 
you know, of you, you, you instead of the Old Testament, you call it the First Testament, which I love yeah. that. But like everyone romanticized Ruth and Boaz. There's so many yeah. historical Christian fiction or Esther, and it's like this. They make it this falling in loveness. But what yeah. was the actual purpose of marriage in the in the Bible, really? <laughs> well, um, it, you know, read the book for anyone who's interested. But um, <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> I, some people might be surprised to find out that theologians and biblical scholars aren't the same thing. Um, and so I only say that because I, I double checked with my biblical scholar colleagues. Yes. Um, John Golden Gay is the, the, uh, the guy that actually coined the first Testament and I borrowed that from him. Okay. Um, so he's, he's one that read some of these early drafts. The interesting thing is that it's really hard to say there is one thing, right? That marriage is one thing in the Bible. Um, marriage is deployed in a number of ways, depending upon the time and the circumstance, um, the audience to whom the, the various books are written, um, the position of peop- God's people in relationship to the broader culture in which they live. And all of those things, obviously, uh, take place in radically different contexts with, with totally different um, uh, issues in play and questions being raised. And that's to say nothing of the fact that there's this sort of before Jesus and the after Jesus reality, right? That, so we're having to kind of navigate all of these questions when it comes to marriage. Um, and I think uh, for me anyway, as I then, part of the reason that I have these questions of, or, or uh, parts of the book that are talking about uh, what does the Bible mean when it says marriage, right? Mm-hmm. Is mainly that that question, and I'm not saying this is a bad question, so don't hear me say that, <laughs> but that question is somewhat artificial to the biblical narrative. Um, so it's something we've inherited from our semi-recent historical context in the United States, that we have this thing called a, quote, biblical view of marriage, um, that that is the, the, again, the, the impulse behind that I get like, oh, what does the Bible say about marriage? How does it address marriage is what, how might it inform and shape and give life to my commitment to my spouse or whether I find a, you know, those sort of things that's totally uh, appropriate. But to say, what's the biblical view of marriage is really hard because, um, as I lay out in the book, there's all sorts of different marriages, um, also, and, and many of them approved of by at least the reading of the, of the, the text, um, and in many ways, blessed. And they do not align with what we would in, in the U.S. right now say is a traditional view of marriage or even God's vision for marriage. So I think um, there's a number of things that marriage is for. Um, one of those is <laughs> for making babies. Um, that's, that's, that's a good that marriage delivers. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of uh, goods that it delivers. One of it is, in fact, companionship, right? It is that that deep, intimate bond that you can get with uh, another human. Um, But each time we say these sort of things, what I don't hear it saying is it's the only avenue to that, um, or it's the only God-ordained avenue to express and experience that sort of intimacy or companionship. Um, And so part of what I do in the book is to say, okay, if we operate as if there's this biblical view of marriage, what does the Bible actually say about marriages? Um, and about the marriages on the ground, how does it describe those? And then what does it say about marriage sort of in the abstract as to whether one would entertain that idea? And I, I just found it interesting that, um, as I sort of went back and did the research and studied it, that, um, we, and by we, I mean the sort of contemporary evangelical discourse speaks, uh, uh, identifies a couple of parts of the Bible 
as if they are the most important and we ignore all the rest. Hmm. And it's not clear to me why we've chosen those parts, <laughs> especially because when you dig down into those parts, I'm not quite sure that they're really primarily about marriage, but they're about other things. Hmm. And then when we get to the parts that seem very clearly about marriage, we, we intentionally don't teach those parts. So for example, Paul's teaching on marriage. In other words, don't get married. Um, Jesus teaching on marriage, which is after this world, the world to come is one in which we're not married. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't, we don't, inter we don't even talk about those for some reason, um, when it comes to what's the quote unquote biblical view of marriage. So I don't, I don't know if I actually answered your question though. Well, what was your, no, you're question? doing great. Um, well, and just to clarify too, if people are listening, uh, and, and they're like, oh man, they're talking egalitarian. They're talking oh. about <laughs> is, and he's saying quote unquote marriage is he, he's saying, okay, so any type of gender getting married is totally fine. And you're not saying that. No, no, no. I'm simply, all I'm saying is, um, the question of marriage. So one thing I do bring up is, um, in the Old Testament, we have various stories of polygamous marriages yeah. um, by, by the patriarchs. Mm -hmm. um, and my read of the text doesn't suggest that those patriarchs are condemned. The, the narrative doesn't say these are evil, wicked people. In fact, it says in some cases, these, these happened um, b by God's approval, like mm -hmm. God was condoning these sort of things. Now, that is not to say I think we should all be polygamists and that the Bible teaches polygamy. I don't think that at all. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm just trying to uh, raise critical questions for us yep. when we, as a, as both as a community, but then maybe even more importantly, as we start publicly talking about marriage in public spheres where people don't um, uh, assume the authority of the biblical text, they see this inconsistency pretty glaringly mm -hmm. that they're saying, well, wait a minute, you claim to be committed to this Bible, especially when it comes to the question of marriage, but have you read it? <laughs> mm -hmm. That's the question that they're asking. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if you have, well, what do you make of these various things? How mm -hmm. do we understand those? And so that's part of why I want to say, um, I think we all need to be, have a little more nuance, a little more charity, uh, a little more grace in the way we talk about marriage, mm -hmm. because the marriages of our patron saints were very complicated. Mm -hmm. um, they were they were functioning in very different ways that don't have these sort of like clean cut lines where we can say, here's the paradigm. Everybody either fits or you're somehow like not loved by God. Right. <laughs> um, right. And that's a very ungracious way to think about marriage. Um, and and I don't think the Bible paints that picture for us. Exactly. And for those of you who are listening, you're like, okay, how can I like, okay, maybe I'm, you're trying to get in your arsenal some arguments for against polyamory <laughs> or like God's design for marriage as far as yep. male and female. Yep. I'd love to send you to centerforfaith.com, get some arguments there. But what I loved about your deconstruction, even in the sentence that you're saying here, and then reconstruction of marriage is, yep. for example, when you're talking about Ruth and Naomi and yep. Boaz, like we just romanticize yep. that. And yet it wasn't about this romance that they fell yeah. in love. And what I loved is you emphasized this, is that uh, when the patriarchs, when, when they got married, it was for with a specific purpose, with a mm -hmm. specific person in a specific place. And so when people, yeah. again, for example, look at Matt and my marriage, they're like, y'all be crazy. Lori, they'll, they'll, they'll say, well, were you as in love with your girlfriend as you are with Matt? Are you romantically attracted? They're obsessed with hormones and attraction and falling in love. And so yep. to read again, your deconstruction and then reconstruction of, oh, it's about mm -hmm. God's call for yeah. a specific 
place, purpose, yeah. and person. Yeah, yeah. No, that's I, it's fantastic that you picked up on that because it's to me. So when I wrote the book, I initially didn't have the chapter on why Christians should get married, <laughs> and and the the publisher was like, you know, you did a really great job telling us why nobody should get married. Maybe maybe a chapter on why. And I'm yeah. like, oh, good point. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I actually had a lot of fun with that because you know you write a book, you kind of have mapped out. Here's kind of what I think I'll say. You know, some of it's surprising, but the best parts as an author is the the the, the areas where you didn't anticipate going. Hmm. And so that section was really fun in part because I, it was basically a thought experiment to go, okay, if I really believe what I say, and that is that yes, romance matters. Yes, sex matters. Yes, mm-hmm. any therapist would say a sexual a, a healthy sexuality is a is a core element of married life. Um, in, in some sense. Now, again, even that, uh, I want to add an asterisk because um, questions of, uh, you know, disability, questions of, um, I mean, all sorts of things come into oh, play yeah. with with uh, what does it look like then mm-hmm. to have healthy sexuality marriage. But okay, set it, setting that aside. Um, but I said, if that's not the reason that we get married, if that's not the ultimate um, mean, or not means, but um, uh, yeah, reason as to why God would say, I've instituted this covenantal bond between two people. Then the question is, well, then what is it for? Right. Um, and as I then, so basically it was to scrub just to pretend like, okay, let's just get rid of sex altogether. And the romance, not even sex, just the romance yeah. altogether. And then what are we left with? And we are left with these amazing things yes. like, <laughs> um, amazing things that we all should be committed to. Like, committing to uh, the welfare of widows and orphans, Mm -hmm. committing to the welfare of people beyond simply the spouse that I'm marrying, Um, creating communities um, that are hospitable, not just for um, other single people, but people that might actually um, find no home traditionally in the Christian community or uh, creating space for, like we bring up before, uh, 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 foster or or adoption uh, 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 children who need families, right? That that this is the family that God has called us into. It's an erratically extended and open-armed family, not this sort of closed dyad that 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 we get if we start with that myth of romantic love that mm-hmm. you're talking about. So mm-hmm. for me, it was really um, great. And so I, I did, uh, the woman I talked about before that wrote an article and had some disagreement and we talked through um, some of it. I, I told her, I go, I wasn't trying to say that, that marriage has nothing to do with sex, Mm -hmm. um, has nothing to do with romance. But what I was saying is the Christian vision of marriage is so much deeper and more fulfilling than that. If that's, if that's it, well, I don't, I, it's not sustainable. Um, you know, again, I'm getting old. Um, and as Ecclesiastes says, desire fails, that sort of thing. But, (laughs) um, but man, if you're going to try to sustain a lifelong covenant with someone, if it's purely romance and sex, you are in for a very, very sad uh, awakening. Absolutely. Um, and and how amazing is it that God has given us these things that we can collaborate together with our spouse on seeking justice in the world, of caring for other people, for doing all the things the gospel leads us to, and have that be the the core sort of vision and mission of our marriage. And that was just to me a really sort of life giving. Uh, part of the chapter and or part of the book to write um, and thinking of those things. Well, and it was so life-giving for me because you were saying sentences I, I say on stages or I want to say, but then it just throwing in all these beautiful exam- biblical examples is I'm like, see, yeah. all y'all suckers. It's not <laughs> yeah. all about, like, because essentially the, the narrative that goes in Christian world is hormones trick you into marriage 
And then yeah. you have, it's like, haha, suckers, now you got to figure it out. Now you're in a yeah. covenant. And so yeah. because, again, that's not Matt and my, our storyline. And, and yeah. we had this, we didn't understand all of this that we've been talking about, but we understood en- enough to at least yeah. to say the I do's. Yeah. And so then now to hear you, you know, articulating this, both deconstruction and reconstruction, it's, it's just affirmation to you guys. Yeah. Maybe perhaps we get something that we, because we weren't tricked into marriage yeah, um, yeah. that everyone and, needs and, to understand. And to me, I think it, it helps. I, th- I hope it helps. Um, and again, I, I, I wrote this with sort of like a team of people and they write, write the various vignettes throughout the book yes. um, that, that talk about their encounter with these marriage norms and, and, and stories. Um, and so it, we, we workshopped a lot of it. And I think what I walked away and I learned so much from them and, and this is part of it, too, of us needing to get together if we're married with single brothers and sisters. Absolutely. And and learn from them and hear what really are their sort of deep, the aches, the the, the, the aching that they've got. Um, and what are the like deep wounds and pains that we as married people have? And, and do yeah. are we sharing those with each other? Yeah. And one of the things that I walked away from this group uh, really learning and I wouldn't have I wouldn't have written this on my own, but is the question of of vocation and, and thinking like, I, I need to actually be careful with how I talk about, and actually I'm trying to remember, I need to go back and reread the book. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and maybe I've just uh, developed a little bit since I, I wrote it is to say, I don't even think we would say I'm called quote unquote to singleness or called to marriage. I have various, maybe one sort of like a, a core calling or vocation, and then a handful of others that are related. Um, and that drives me into very particular scenarios and relationships with specific people, like you were saying, that that I don't think um, anyone's walking around with just a generic, abstract call to marriage yeah. or singleness. It's God has put me on this earth and, and written a name on my heart that is not written on anybody else's. And that's the vision God has for me. Okay, what's what, what are the things now? What, what are the relationships? What are the networks mm. and the people that I need to, to commit to uh, in order to, to fully live into that calling and that vocation. And in some cases, it will be marriage to a certain person. Uh, in certain cases, it will be not marriage, you know. Um, but to, to walk into it in the bachelor or bachelorette vision where I just am going to be with someone at the end of this, Ugh. it doesn't really matter who the 25 people lined up are, just who, you know, survival of the fittest at the end. Well, you're the winner uh, for my, you know, marriage calling. That, I think, is actually, uh, that is the idol, right? That's the... Um, and I love you guys' uh, language of the deep longings. Yeah. Um, I just was noticing um, where um, I use this. I don't think he knows, but uh, Pete Rollins, who I'm sure nobody <laughs> wants to read. But he has this amazing thing about idolatry in terms of a magic act and that um, we create this big other. And this is sort of Lacanian psychoanalysis. So mm-hmm. you can just forget about it. Just think about a magic <laughs> trick, right? Yeah. Um, and the magician puts the, the curtain up and then removes it. And the thing has disappeared and then puts the curtain back up. And P. Rollins says, it's the curtain, it's the prohibition that actually creates the thing on the other side mm-hmm. um, that we make into this idol. And we, we, we long for it. We desire it. Um, and part of what Jesus does, part of what the gospel does is and he uses the sort of the veil, like the veil tail tears apart in Jesus' death. And what's revealed is an emptiness that the, the gods and the idols we've constructed that orient our heart and that we think are going to fulfill our deepest longings are actually an illusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need Jesus to sort of uh, tear that veil down and reveal to us the absence that's there. 
um, and get us off that pursuit of the sacred object altogether. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not to replace it with something else. It's to actually just uh, get out of that game completely um, in and underneath the, the, the gospel. So good. It's so good. Well, Cutter, I want to ask you like 17 million more questions. <laughs> but and sorry, I'm, I'm long-winded. I'm I'm a Southern Baptist preacher, so I can't I can't answer any question concisely. That's no, my fault. It's beautiful. And um I, I guess I would just ask in in a couple sentences, even even ask, looking at your Southern Baptist self, how can we do a better job of cultivating the next generation so that like we started with the question of the week, you know, these, these inherited paradigms and norms, how can we pass on a different one so that we aren't worshiping at the altar of marriage and sex? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, because it's hard for me to answer in two sentences, but I would say (laughs) probably I think more than anything else. And this is because I have three daughters, um, is to put in public positions of leadership, people that we want them modeling after. The, the initial uh, uh, title I had for this book was Sex, Saints, and Singleness. Hmm. Um, and the reason is because I said Protestants don't have this thing called saints, um, it, you know, not, not a formal category. But I think we really need some of those. We need some champions of the faith who are lifelong celibate single Christians who have a deeply fulfilling life that aren't, aren't walking around like, oh, I'm so sad. And I know these individuals. And so part of my task is, and our task as a community, is to tell those people stories, yep. to intentionally put them, even as simple as have them be our pastors and our mm-hmm. preachers and our worship leaders and, and elevate them as people that we would want our kids um, looking to and saying, oh, that's what it means, right? Um, I just remember the first time, I mean, I'm right now at a, not at a Southern Baptist church, but um, this gets back to my scandalous egalitarianism. Um, <laughs> but um, I'm currently at a Nazarene church, and we actually, as a, this as a denomination, is, is um, supportive of women in ministry and ordained ministry. Mm. Um, but our church as a whole does not often have women preaching. Um, and I think my oldest daughter is probably going to be a pretty good preacher, at least a good performer, stage performer, <laughs> maybe we'll, <laughs> LA. Go into preaching. But, yeah, yeah. Um, but I remember the first time she ever saw a woman on the stage of our church, wasn't even preaching. Um, I think she was doing something, I can't remember, but reading scripture or something. And she basically looked at me and said, Oh dad, I can be a pastor. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh my, you know, like, oh, here I am, you know, supposedly supported his things. And I didn't even think about how, how powerful that message was to her that mm-hmm. you as a woman are not allowed in church leadership because we don't show you any picture of leadership every week you show up to church. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that whether it's with singleness, um, whether it's with women, um, doing our best to say, here are examples, here are, mo- here are saints, right, that, mm-hmm. that we can teach our kids. That's, that's who you want to be. That's Mm -hmm. who you want to model your life after. Thank you. Really. Thank you. And I hope we can make it out to, to talk further with you in the future and ask, ask some more questions. Um, but speaking of questions, for those of you who uh, listen and are going to be a part of the, the, the family next week, we would love to hear from you. A question that I asked, Cutter, which is, are you a jigsaw puzzler or not? Are you that type of person or are you not? And is your are your closest friends or is your spouse a puzzler or not? So I want to hear it. 
just to see if my theory needs to be demolished <laughs> that we are <laughs> attracted to our friends and spouse who is our opposite. Um, and you guys, please check out Cutter's new books. We really, I want you to please look at him. He's actually taking his social media fast right now. And so he's not posting about him. So I'm going to help a brother out. So please look at that. And of course, this Breaking the Marriage Idol book that came out last year. So good. Really just, it was really encouraging to my soul to hear it. Um, so thank you, Cutter, so much for being a part of this show. It's such a, a delight to hear your heart. Thank you. And thank you for having me a guest on. You are so welcome. All right, you guys. Well, we are excited to talk with you next week. And, and we're, we're done with our Core Needs series. So what do we talk about? We'll see. <laughs> all right. Well, for all of us here at the Hole in My Heart podcast, we will see you next week. But our tickets to the Super Bowl, Jesus. <laughs> so bad because he's the demon right. possessed me. <laughs> All right. No having any fun unless you're making fun of how Dumb of the, the devil. devil is. Yeah. And he's like, you, you well, must I can't have even a tell stylish you. beard like mine. Yes. I can't even say what you did because I'm Jesus. Yes. <laughs> you were dancing too close to that girlfriend of yours. Peter, <laughs> I love it when you say my name, but not when you hit your thumb with the hammer. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's awesome you, you laughed at him when you hit when he hit his finger <laughs> all right all right uh, see here's the problem i remember all this so yeah. I, i'm like okay i'm still i'm still in the loop You're i'm still, still relevant no, but we all i remember know. but i can't like quote it so oh, that's yeah. where i'm starting to lose it i oh, used to no. be able to quote stuff like you guys <laughs> I can't quote it anymore. Now, what? when you're quoting, I'm like, yeah, that's right. I know. But the sea doesn't it make it better. You're like a goldfish. You're like, a little yeah, bit. it's still funny. A little bit. Yes. There is that component. I can't remember jokes. Really? Ever. No. So Other than funny. knock, knock. Okay. But Juliet's joke is not funny. This is this is her middle of the night always. <laughs> yeah. Mom, 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 I got to tell, tell you something. something. Okay, Juliet, what is it? Knock, knock. knock. <laughs> Who's there? Interrupting cow. Interrupting cow who? Don't cry. It's just a cheese stick haircut. It's <laughs> <laughs> her latest joke. It's not about it's the It's a cow. mixture of the knock, yes. knock, boo-hoo. Yeah, so then you're supposed to boo-hoo. Oh, don't cry. It's oh, just a haircut. Yes, but then yes. for some reason, she threw cheese stick in oh, there. Man. It's not funny my, at all. No, let me tell you something. What? My, I hope my kids never listen to this. Yeah, I would say my favorite kid. My, <laughs> no, that's not what I meant I'm to say. I'm sending it to the, the kid who is the funniest okay. of mine. David, you said he's favorite. got the best sense of humor. Okay. I, I meant the, the, my favorite sense of humor of my kids. Sure. <laughs> Your favorite yeah. kid um, with a sense of humor. No, he hmm? <laughs> he started out with the kind of experimenting with the knock knock joke. Yeah, yeah. And it was nonsense. Yeah. It, it made no sense. But he was trying it. He was like <gasps> experimenting. Yeah. So she is going to be funny. Yes. She was singing Wiz Khalifa this morning. <laughs> Do you remember black and yellow, black and yellow? No. Uh huh. She changed you know the colors. Is. That's so awesome. She, this is a two-year-old voice. She's like, red and yellow, red and yellow, and she goes, uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> what it is? And she's two. Okay, but my biggest beef slash hilarity with it is why Matt they've never heard it, but you for some reason feel like this two-year-old's gotta know Wiz Khalifa's <laughs> black and yellow song. I don't know why. It's it's what? really it's it's not even Wiz Khalifa. Is it, it not? Well, no. It, the song is Wiz Khalifa, I believe. But it's just 
Sometimes when they say two colors together, that is my auto response is just to sing it in that tune. With uh-huh, uh-huh. And then uh-huh. You, you corrected yeah. her today. You're like, you forgot oh, the man. yeah. Like, she's too singing Wiz Khalifa. <laughs> no, I just had to add. I, I just had to add it to her repertoire because she sure, was stopping honey. right before then. It's the important things. Oh, yeah. Little details. It's of the parenting. details. Yes. 